Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for joining us on Heritage Events Live. We're delighted to welcome you to Unequal Protection, the push to replace equality with equity is unconstitutional, part of our Preserve the Constitution series. Please welcome our host, Sarah Parshall Perry, Legal Fellow at the Mies Center at the Heritage Foundation. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. I am delighted to host the inaugural event in our Preserve the Constitution series. Once upon a time in America, equality, the notion that all individuals were created equal and capable of achieving for themselves the benefits of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness was cherished first among our shared national values. It was both fundamental to our nation's founding and to the exercise of its many freedoms. But within the past decade, equity has come to act as a substitute for equality. It is now embraced wholesale by schools, corporate America, and the federal government, infiltrated hiring, training, admissions, and the military. But equity, the left's new buzzword, is far from equality. In fact, equity is equality's demonstrable opposite. Rather than providing all individuals with equal opportunities to succeed, equity segregates individuals by race or sex while simultaneously driving the narrative of oppressor and victim. It calls for institutions to treat people unequally, purportedly to achieve an equal outcome. Its fixation on individual identities serves to deepen longstanding American philosophical divides. Equity recklessly embraces the consideration of legally prohibited classifications as a way to eliminate perceived bias or differences in outcome, but in so doing, it violates both equal protection and federal law. And in the modern day, equity is booming. Joining me today are four experts litigating, writing, and advocating in the field on a sensible return to equality, a principle outlined in the 14th Amendment to our Constitution, one that guarantees all citizens the equal protection of the nation's laws, a principle crucial to the protection and proper operation of American civil rights law. Braden Busek is Director of Litigation at the Southeastern Legal Foundation, where he manages litigation efforts and advises on policy for the organization. Prior to joining, he was Vice President of Legal Affairs at a state-based public interest law firm at Policy Center. He has spent 14 years as well serving as a state and federal prosecutor. Rick Essenberg is the founder, president, and general counsel of the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, one of the more active state-based think tanks in the nation. He is a frequent litigator in state and federal courts and a nationally recognized scholar and commentator on constitutional law. Mike Gonzalez is our Heritage Foundation Senior Fellow for Foreign Policy and our E Pluribus Unum Fellow writing on critical race theory, identity politics, diversity, multiculturalism, and nationalism. He spent close to 20 years as a journalist all around the world, labor, labor serving under President George W. Bush under the Security and Exchange Commission, as well as the State Department's European Bureau. His most recent book is Black Lives Matter. 
the making of a new Marxist revolution. Wen Fa is counsel with Pacific Legal Foundation and litigates in the areas of free speech and equality before the law. He was one of the primary attorneys in two of PLF's recent Supreme Court cases, Minnesota Voters Alliance versus Mansky and Cedar Point Nursery versus Hasid. Wen represented a university professor, an army veteran, and a musician in their challenge to the California DMV vague speech prohibition, has testified before Congress, written for national publications, and served with the Human Rights Initiative at the Austin chapter of the Institute for Justice. Wen, let's start with you. Thank you so much, Sarah. So I think this is one of the most important issues, if not the most important issue uh, of the current moment. As Sarah laid out, Equity and equality both uh, involve two separate uh, sort of notions of what it means uh, to be equal before the law. <clears throat> equity actually deals with equality of outcomes, and it deals with equality of outcomes not in the not in the any individual sense, which itself would be wrong, but in the group-based sense of each arbitrary racial group must have equal outcomes. Equality under the law is something completely different. It, it focuses on equality of rights. It counters equity by saying equity is both over-inclusive and under-inclusive. Equity is under-inclusive because it does not share the sort of universalism as equality. It does not share the idea that we're all entitled to uh, individual rights as individuals and not based on our membership in a racial group. It is also over-inclusive and that it, it classifies people by crude racial categories. It does not focus on individuals. It does not take into account individual aspirations, individual uh, achievements, and also and individual accomplishments. So what does this mean in terms, uh, these are all principles. What, did, what do these mean? What do these principles mean in terms of people? Well, I think some of our cases have highlighted the differences between equity and equality and why that is important as a constitutional matter and also as a matter of principle. We've represented parents, uh, Hispanic and black parents in Hartford, Connecticut, in their attempt to get their children into schools, magnet schools with empty seats in that city. And the reason that their children were not allowed to go to schools with empty seats was because there was a racial quota saying that only uh, there must be a diverse student body and 25% of the seats had to be reserved for white and Asian students. That's what we're fighting for in, our, in representing Asian American parents in New York, Virginia, and Maryland in their fight against unconstitutional attempts to change the admissions policy because the school districts wrongly believe that there are too many Asian Americans at those schools and it's not diverse enough uh, for the students. And that's what we're fighting for, I think, along with uh, Braden and, and Rick on the panel, uh, with our representation of farmers. We represent farmers in five different states, including Florida, Texas, and Oregon. And we represent them in challenging a farm loan policy that says that you are entitled to farm loan relief if you're a minority, no matter what your circumstances, and you're categorically excluded if you're white, regardless of individual circumstances. So this is an absolutely critical fight. It's an important fight. It's a battle in the courts. It's a battle of ideas. And it's a battle we intend to win.
Mike, let me ask you a question. As someone who has written extensively on the notion of equity, who has spoken truly all around the country, and he is fresh off a trip of his own, um, can you explain to us a little bit about the origins of a notion like equity? How something that is so pernicious but can sound so anodyne has suddenly overtaken the American culture. What is its aim? Uh, yes, thank you very much, and uh, thank you all for being here. Uh, I, I, that is right. I did get up at 3 a.m. in Mishawaka, Indiana this morning, so do do forgive me. Um, I, we, I have actually looked at it, and it appears like with many bad things, that the, t the use of the term equity spiked uh, under the Obama administration. And I actually haven't pinpointed the year because I, I mean, I've been traveling a lot. But I'm pretty sure it probably starts like, like a lot of bad things around 2014, which is Ferguson. Ferguson is when, when obviously, we know Michael Brown's uh, killing and Black Lives Matter was there. And all of, a lot of leftist groups gather in Ferguson uh, and, and, and come up with a blueprint. And I think. Uh, and if you look at, for example, Tablet Magazine has looked at terms that the New York Times and the Washington Post began to use, and they really do begin in 2014. I was uh, telling my colleagues uh, here earlier that I did have one, one of my colleagues, Jonathan Butcher, uh, did find the, this corrupted use, uh, use of the term equity in, in, in a, a, a debate in Northern Ireland in the 1990s. And that is a very bad sign uh, that uh, the idea was they were trying to work out a peace process and were having an argument over it. The Catholics and the Protestants did make a difference between equity and equality. But you're, you're quite right that uh, this is a corrupted uh, use of the term. Uh, as you said, it actually it, it does really, really bad things. Uh, one of the things that it does, obviously, as, we, as you put it, is it uses all these, these categories that are quite artificial. Uh, so, so it measures outcome uh, based on, on, on category versus category. But as we know, the Asian category is quite diverse and it's artificial. The Hispanic category, they, they, they have very different indicators. It's not even that Mexican-Americans have very different indicators than Cuban-Americans. It's that Mexican-Americans in, in, in the Rio Grande Valley have different uh, indicators than they do in Chicago or Los Angeles. Uh, and and, and, and African-American is also, I mean, like, if you break down uh, African-Americans as a category and you look at Ghanaian-Americans and Nigerian-Americans, they do better than whites. They have, they have a higher income per household. Uh, and if you look at West Indians, for example, in New York, they also have closed a lot of the gaps, a lot of the, the, the aid measures that they use. Uh, and if you look at family structure, which is really what we should be looking at, because if we, act, if we look at whites and you look at family structure, we see where they, they don't perform and the way they do perform. So this is just, these are categories made up by the left in the 70s on purpose. I've written about this a lot. And, I, as I, I had a very large turnout in Mishawaka last night, about 200 people. And one of the lines that I, that I find that always works is when I say, race conscious policies would be a ginormous step backward. We tried this. It was called the Plessy era. It was called Jim Crow. We decided that this was not good for the country. And, and LBJ, for all his faults, did sign the Civil Rights Act on June 2nd, 1964. And, uh, I, I asked you before we were in the green room, I think this is the, 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 the farm bill, it's actually the first time since then that we have a law signed uh, that, that acts on, that is racially conscious. Obviously we have uh, affirmative action and we have uh, uh, the, 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 the disparate impact doctrine in many of our laws and, and, and policies. 
but this what we're looking at and and we really should do everything we can to stop it is a gigantic step backward to an America that that we decided no longer worked. So thank you. Rick, let me ask you a question. This summer, Kate Brown, the governor of Oregon, decided that she would sign a law repealing the state's requirement high school graduates had to demonstrate an ability to read, write, and do math at a high school level. And a spokesman said that these equitable graduation standards would benefit minority communities in Oregon. What is your organization, the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, seeing in terms of ground level pushback on these equitable policies? Well, there's a great deal of pushback uh, that we see um, uh, spontaneous uprising of parents. And, and, and I think it's important to acknowledge why. Um, you know, when I was in law school um, a couple of years ago, um, uh, two of my uh, early professors were, were Duncan Kennedy, who's the father of um, critical legal theory, and Derek Bell, who came to be the father of critical legal studies. And they tried to teach me that liberalism, I'm talking about American classical liberalism, not Democratic Party liberalism, um, was a shuck. And uh, it didn't mean anything. And uh, uh, it was simply about competing power relationships. And that, I think, has led us um, to the position that we're in now. And I think people are noticing that. And they're becoming very, very upset about it. Because one could take the position that Governor Brown only takes only if one sort of sees um, the equality that is guaranteed by the Declaration and the Constitution as a procedural equality based on consent that has no deeper meaning, when in fact, I think the truth is, um, that the equality that we've all come to recognize is a far deeper equality based upon the dignity of each person. And that so it's a fundamental flaw, it's a category error to, to, to speak in terms of equity and equality on a group-like basis. Our concern should not be um, whether there is group parity. Our concern should be whether every individual who is um, uh, who is vying for favor, for a job, for admission to college, whatever it is, get a business, whatever happens to be, that they are treated without regard to extraneous circumstances such as the color of their skin. And what we've seen now is an extraordinary, blatant, and broad abandonment of that principle. We've decided now that we are going to treat people on the basis of race. I think I had a piece of National Review a while back about how um, how this really goes beyond disparate impact theory. For those of you who are lawyers, we always used to worry about disparate impact theory and what it really did. Um, ostensibly, it was a way to identify differential treatment. But in practice, it was a way to mandate that the numbers were right. But in every case, when we're using disparate impact theory, we have to point to something that's happened. We have to point to a policy that's adopted uh, that then, um, uh, we argue, leads to unequal outcomes. Here, we've done away with it. Um, equal, unequal outcomes is all we need to worry about. And uh, when we brought um, uh, early in spring cases, we, we, we challenged the Restaurant Revitalization Fund. We got a favorable split decision, but a favorable decision in the Sixth Circuit which stopped that program. When we challenged the, uh, the farmers program, we got a TRO up in the Eastern District of Wisconsin in Green Bay, where they have a lot of farmers, uh, that stopped that program. Um, it was astonishing to me that the argument that the government made in response to that was really amounted to nothing more 
then groups are not equal. And once we take that as our lodestar, then we've abandoned that deeper principle about the innate equality of, of individuals based in their innate dignity. We've given up, uh, we've given up um, the moral power of the civil rights movement, the very thing that allowed us to move past the Plessy area that Mike uh, rightly denounces, that would be a tragedy. And so, uh, you know, the one thing that we've decided at will, and I know that these other groups have decided, is that we're gonna throw everything we can into the fight against this. Um, because, you know, we can argue about what the marginal tax rate is, we can argue about what immigration policy, but this really goes to the foundation of our country, and it's not something upon which we can readily compromise. Brayden, at the ground level in education, really sort of the North Star for equitable policies is critical race theory. Talk a little bit about our response as conservatives, as individuals who take a textualist interpretation of Title VI or the Equal Protection Clause. How do we push back on something like critical race theory? What does it do that makes it part and parcel of the equity movement? Well, the first thing we need to do is pull out the terms and define them. Um, I'm sure you've all noticed that there's something of a verbal shell game that goes on when you try and argue about critical race theory, where it's supposedly this innocuous concept that just recognizes past historical inequity. However, as soon as you leave the room, all of a sudden they're back asking people to rate their privilege and students to separate on the basis of race. That's what critical race theory is. We try to not get too hung up on the labels themselves and just focus on what is actually happening. And that's why if you go to look at some of the work we've done at Southeastern Legal when we plead our complaints, we use a lot of images in our complaints just so people can see what it is. And I would encourage anyone to go look at some of these images, even people who think that critical race theory isn't a problem, even people on the other side of the political aisle, when you actually show them these images from a book called Not My Idea, a Book About Whiteness, which has a picture of a literal white devil holding up a contract binding you to whiteness, and learn that that is being taught to students as young as pre-K. And then they're being asked to participate in an exercise where they reflect on all of that. Or you have teachers being asked to participate in anti-racist solo rights, or being told that parents are the oppressors of their children, or affinity, affinity groups and all these sorts of situations. And you know they have to be seen to believe. And uh, you know one of the things that's just astonishing is as they both alluded to, we've had to work really hard to get to the point in time where colorblindness, you know, the concept that we first expressed in the Declaration of Independence, truly became a shared value. And, you know, Rick and I were talking about this a little bit earlier, but we're now to the point in time where, like, nothing will result in your social ostracization faster than, you know, being dubbed and declared a racist. So here we sit in 2021, and coming from some of the most powerful quarters in America, we're being asked to consider colorblindness as an ideal. And I think that's nothing short of astonishing. Um, and again, I'm, I'm not mischaracterizing um, critical race theory. Uh, you can take them on their own words. We've got, we see this, and we've pled it in our complaints, where you've got images of covert and overt white supremacy, where colorblindness is itself listed as a form of white supremacy. It's not a characterization, that's just what's going on. And your organization has brought two lawsuits specifically related to education, one using the First Amendment, two teachers who decided that they did not agree and were being forced to acquiesce with perspectives in an equity training that they did not hold, and another representing a teacher who sought 
affinity groups separated by race, instruction separating students by race using Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. So there are legal mechanisms available to be able to push back on the notion of equity. Rick, talk a little bit about corporations and their efforts to promote diversity, which look tremendously like racial quotas and what opportunities we might have to use the law to respond to those types of practices. Yeah, I mean, well, there's this thing called woke capitalism and there's this, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be very careful. Um, uh, I, I think it's Nike or it's one of the athletic companies that now uh, runs a commercial on television um, that um, looks like political agitation, um, which ends with um, you know a little girl marching and pumping her fist and saying no justice, no peace, no justice, no peace. And um, it, it's amazing to me to think that um, uh, that that the corporate world will be doing this. I think that they've decided that that's how you make money. Um, I also think they've decided, given the social milieu from which um, uh, most corporate executives, particularly in publicly held companies, um, um, come, um, that that this is the respectable point of view that they must follow. And as long as it doesn't really hurt the bottom line too much, um, uh, that um, it's something that they will do. Um, but the legal remedies are, um, um, I think, um, a little bit more difficult. Now, one of the things that we talk about, I mean, we certainly have the, the traditional Title VII remedies um, if we're talking about um, discriminating against um, uh, people on the basis of race. They're just a little less robust than if we're in the public sector, but I think that they are still there. Uh, the second um, area, and this is the one that um, I think requires a great deal of sensitivity on behind of, of line litigators, is when are we going to bring hostile environment claims? So, you know, in the seventh, in the in the in the context of Title VII, you know, if you have a workplace, and traditionally this workplace was one in which um, the hypothesis was that um, black employees or women employees were treated very, very badly. And that um, the, the level of bad treatment could arise um, to um, a, a level um, which constituted a hostile environment. Uh, we have similar concepts in the, uh, in the education field. And um, that uh, there's no reason in theory that these tools can't be turned around and used um, to attack things like diversity training, um, critical race instruction, because oftentimes um, what we see is particularly hostile. I mean, we get calls about, you know, four-year-olds in kindergarten having to go through struggle sessions. And, and uh, you know, there was a, uh, you know, there was a teacher in, uh, in, in a uh, suburban district outside Madison, outside Madison, Wisconsin. So, you know, realize this is Madison, Wisconsin, Berkeley with snow. And uh, the, the um, um, in which the music teacher took musical instruments away from the white kids so they would know what it feels like. And so, uh, but um, I think that has to be done with a great deal of sensitivity because hostile environment uh, claims from the get-go, um, I think were occasions of sin. They were um, at odds with the at least a notion of free expression. And so our view has been that um, that's a tool that can be used um, only in the most extreme circumstances. And um, I think that, um, you know, uh, Braden and Kim's case 
uh, in Skokie is um, if there's an example of a real extreme circumstance in which that type of litigation is warranted, that's, that's the prime example, I think, for it. Um, but I think we have to be very, very careful. Uh, we also have to be careful in efforts to legislatively ban uh, uh, you know, CRT-induced concepts because you know, it, it, it's not a case like being as tough on crime as we possibly can is a good thing. We know what we want to preclude, right? We want to preclude, um, you know, this 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 view of America as a fundamentally evil place, uh, which is endemically racist, and which people can no longer be treated uh, based on the content of their character, but must be treated on the color of their skin. We want to stop that, and we can stop that uh, when it comes to government speech. But we don't want to stop teaching American history in full and kids learning about, you know. He had to bell and run up to the Civil War, the failure of Reconstruction, all that good stuff. And so um, I think in these two areas, we have to operate in a great deal of care. I'm going to open it up now to the panel because there's a wealth of experience here and uh, of knowledge. So I'd like to ask just a few questions about where we're seeing some of these equity efforts. We've talked a little bit about education. We've talked about the corporate sphere as well. Just today, a an Urban Institute blog came out with a piece entitled, Equitable Research Requires Questioning the Status Quo. And three criteria of what was deemed to be inequitable research was objectivity, rigor, and exclusive funding. In other words, what we might ordinarily strive for in the case of actually producing usable, finite, true research for the benefit of all, rigor was deemed to be inequitable, potentially racist. How do we respond to notions of inequity, not just in the academy, but even in spaces where they might ordinarily not be anticipated? We recognize them now in corporations. We recognize them in education. How do we counter something like a lack of objectivity, an inequity in things like research? That is the basis of critical race theory and the basis of critical legal theory. I can't believe that you were taught by Duncan Kennedy and Derek Bell. I mean, <laughs> um, uh, and, and the basis of critical theory they can't is. Can't believe it either. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're quite normal. Um, uh, it, uh, it really is pulling out the foundations of America that they seek. So when they say that what they want to, if, if something they see something as perpetuating the status quo then, then they, of course, they're going to target it. You brought up Madison. It is in Madison where the first uh, conference is held in 1989, where they give it the name <laughs> Critical Race Theory. And if you read uh, the, the, the books and the papers of Critical Race, there's a book, actually, that I recommend that you all read. It's, it's quite thick and big. It's called Critical Race Theory, written by Kimberly Crenshaw, and Neil Gotanda, and, and, and Peller, and others. They, they call it Ha Ha Ha, the, the big red book. Um, and, 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 and in it, they make very clear that they are at war with the Civil Rights Era and the Civil Rights Act. And it's exactly on this. They say the, they hate Bakke more than we do, because they say that Bakke actually stopped the, the, the unequal treatment of Americans according to category uh, that they seek, and they're very obvious about this, and they say that the civil rights era was aborted uh, when they say, how could it, everybody who was in a position of authority should have been fired on June 3rd after LBJ signed this. What they wanted was the bathification of the US system, 
and they wanted to go entirely towards a system of color conscious laws. This idea that is actually quite old, uh, the horse race analogy uh, that goes back to Crawley uh, in, in the 19th century, that you know you have, you have two horses, but one starting over here, they cannot end up in the same place. Uh, this is this is this has taken quite a hold in them, but behind this, they are at war with the American system. They they, they think is it, because it produces inequality. The reason they hate capitalism too is because it produces inequality, and of course, and and, and freedom and freedom. They say. Justice and freedom have a, a this kind of a relationship, and they're right. On the freedom and capitalism, we are going to have unequal outcomes because some people are going to be work harder than others. Some people are going to be rewarded more than others. They and they want to, they want government to step in and stop that. I just wanted to, to add that. Yeah, and I want to follow up on something that Braden said about the shell games that I think some of those who advocate for equity are playing with words. I think when you pull those back, when you when you reveal what they actually mean. We're clearly on the moral high ground, and I think it's actually going to be pretty easy to persuade a lot of people that we should choose equality over equality of rights over equity. And the reason I say that is because a lot of these programs, when you look at them, they're demeaning for to everybody. Like in the farm loans cases that uh, Rick and Braden uh, and I were talking about earlier, they consider every single minority to be socially disadvantaged, regardless of what they've accomplished. And, and what they've produced. And I think that's just degrading to a lot of people, uh, including minority farmers and ranchers. And you know, when you talk about um, lived experiences, a lot, a lot of those people who are advocating for equity talk about lived experiences, but every time someone states a lived experience that disagrees with their narrative, that counters their narrative, and a lot of people do, they start saying, oh, well, this person has been radicalized by you know, some uh, counter agenda or something like that. So I think once we start peeling back the words and really look at the principles, this is going to be something that will be quite easy to, to persuade all individuals that we are on the side of justice. And, and y'all pitch in on it too, just to say, um, you know, the law is only gonna take us so far we absolutely need civic re-engagement and cultural reawakening on this front. I think that um, we've had a somewhat cultural drift that's been going on to, as a function of the post-World War II consensus uh, about you know, America, and I just think that consensus is now over, and that's why we see people now taking direct aim at the founding and the justice and wisdom of the founding. But the good news is, sort of echoing Wen's point, is that you do see parents waking up um, and I think some of the indignity that, that they're and outrage that they're expressing is that I can't just trust my local school boards to teach, you know, America is the land of opportunity. I've got to watch them. And they didn't have to do that and their parents didn't have to do it, but we've got to do it. And, you know, what I take a little bit of comfort from is that's always been the expectation that America has had for its citizenry from the founding. I mean, it goes back to the Benjamin Franklin comment about a republic if you can keep it. You're only going to have a republic if the citizen remains educated and engaged, and we haven't had to do that very much since World War II because we've had so much cultural momentum. And, you know, if it stinks that you're going to have to monitor your local school boards, you know, and your parents didn't have to do it, but that's what you've got to do to save America, I just say it sounds better to me than Valley Forge. You know the problem is that the thing the, the thing will ultimately eat itself uh, because um, you know we've already seen this with uh, um, you know the rise of intersectionality and the ranking of um, different levels of uh, 
of, of, of disadvantage. We've seen it in the, in, in, in the Harvard case where, you know, Harvard is admitting uh, too many Asian Americans. We have a case that's pending now where we're, uh, we're challenging a, uh, a scholarship program uh, which um, reserves its scholarships for um, uh, people of certain racial groups, but only persons of certain racial groups. So um, our, our, the case is called Rabinia versus Higher Education Board. Um, Kiki Rabinia is our, uh, is our lead plaintiff. She is a Thai immigrant, um, but uh, who came to this country with nothing, uh, 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 got herself uh, a registered nurse degree, uh, works as a nurse, uh, has a high school age son, um, but her family is not eligible to participate in this program because she is apparently of the wrong minority. And uh, I, I think that that's inevitable um, because I think if you, if you make the color of your skin or your identity um, the currency of your worth, um, we now have to inevitably enter into these gradations. And so, you know, we were, uh, before we filed the case, we did what groups like ours do. You know, we, we, we got a video crew out there because, you know, you got to make that plaintiff look sympathetic. That's very important. IJ taught us that. And uh, uh, so we, we were, we're taking, uh, we're, we're doing film of Kiki. And, you know, she, her English isn't, um, I, it, it's a thousand times better than my tie, but it still leaves something to be desired. <laughs> and uh, at one point, she looks into the camera and she says, uh, equal opportunity in America should be for everyone. And that was the moment where I said, okay, we don't have to take anymore. <laughs> we don't have to. We're done. This is it. Um, uh, she has managed to distill this in a way um, which is far more wise than most of our elites, and, uh, and let's just go with that. But I, but I, I think that's going to increasingly become an issue here. So I'm going to put you all on the spot here. Uh, just this year, the Illinois Law Review published an article entitled Allocating Medicine Fairly in an Unfair Pandemic, asking the question essentially whether or not it was lawful and ethical to prioritize certain racial groups above others for COVID-19 vaccination. So how does the panel answer that question? Are you asking us if it's lawful or... Justice. I'd love your response. No, I don't think we should be allocating precious medical resources based on racial categorization. Um, I mean, I think it's obviously immoral and it's also unconstitutional. I don't think there's any way they could actually get away with that if that's what they wanted to do. I mean, it just emphasizes, though, that you really are seeing a, a spread the flood the zone kind of strategy here where, you know, this is just being pushed in all manner of fields. And, you know, we're going to have to be vigilant and watchful and nimble on our feet to catch up to it all. Other thoughts? Not only that, but it uses uh, OMB categories that are artificial, that had nothing to do with biology or culture, which has to do with medicine. Uh, Asian Americans are people who hail from the Indian subcontinent or people who hail from Korea or Philippines. Uh, the same with Hispanic Americans. Uh, this is, this is, these, these categories are monolithic and stupid, really. But they, they were created by, it was the left, we have to understand this, as it was leftist activists who in the 1970s, under the influence of the new left, uh, really wanted to, and, and, and they won, because they always win. Uh, so I don't know how you, I agree with you that this is immoral to begin with, to allocate any kind of resource based on race, but it's not using race, it's using OMB categories created not by anthropologists or scientists. Well, we, we, we saw a, 
fine point to put on the notion of equity or inequity during the COVID-19 pandemic, whether this was farm loans, whether it was re-enrollment of certain student groups based on skin color, whether or not it had to do with instruction that was being provided virtually, as I had the benefit of overseeing in my children's own virtual schooling. So we're dealing with a whole of government response from the current administration on promoting equity. In fact, one of the president's current approaches was promoting a gender equity council. Now, being a woman and at one point deemed to have been disadvantaged or a people group that may have been not as equally opportune as other people groups, I can say that there seems to be an undue focus on governmental intervention with segregation of individual classifications. Are we forced to respond ad hoc to these individual efforts, or is there a way to approach this whole cloth? Well, I, I think a lot of the work that we do is approaching this from uh, an integ in integrated approach, saying that we're going to set precedent in the court of laws and we are also going to uh, win the battle in the court of ideas. Um, and I think a lot of this, it, it is about equality, but it also requires having sort of a, a, a mindset that embraces, I think, uh, American ideals of reason, the free market, innovation, because a lot of the things that you were just talking about, I think, really gets at this fixed pie mindset. And that's why, that's what a lot of people are fighting for. There's a fixed pie, and this, this amount has to be allocated to this race, that amount has to be allocated to that race. And I think both thoughts are wrong. In terms of the, the fixed pie mindset, I think America is a country where there's not just, uh, a lot, uh, not just a land of opportunities, but also a land of increasing opportunities. And the reason that we're able to increase our opportunities is, is by increasing our knowledge, increasing innovation, and that's why it's so important to get things like reason, knowledge, and innovation back into education, back into corporate America, and reject uh, calls from those who believe in equity to substitute uh, the notion of collectivism in, in lieu of innovation and reason. Other thoughts? I, I think that we have to we have to go after this whole cloth because I, I, th I think we have to take the position that these are lines that you simply cannot cross because once you cross them, you have um, you, you've taken leave of the core um, uh, uh, moral principle uh, that we should be treated by uh, on, on the basis. I mean, you know, Martin Luther King said we should be uh, treated based on the content of the character and on the color of our skin. And people will then go, King scholars will come and say, oh, yes, but he really was a Marxist, or he really <laughs> believed in this, and he really believed in that. And maybe he believed in all of that stuff. But he didn't win because of that stuff. He won because he clearly articulated a moral principle that the segregationists could not answer. And there's no going back on that. There's no saying, OK, we're going to give that up just for a little bit of time in order to equal things out. Because people will notice, as those parents that we talked about, and um, they will get very annoyed, and they will um, uh, you know, abandon the principle altogether. You know, uh, Charles Murray has his uh, latest um, book out. Um, I think it's called Two Hard Truths, uh, uh, in which he <coughs> does some statistical analysis of, of uh, 
uh, educational attainment in, 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 in crime, and, and we can argue about whether he's got that right or whether he uh, doesn't really take a position as to why there are racial differences, but you can kind of read between the lines and see what he thinks. But, but one of the things that he says, which I think is quite profound, is do we really want to return to a time when white people thought of themselves as a class? Do we really want to do that? We did that once before. It was really, really ugly. We shouldn't do it. Uh, we shouldn't do it again. So I think it has to be um, a whole cloth approach. The approach to pushback on the critical race theory analysis at the ground levels really galvanized the parenting approach to public education. And I am of the mind that conservatives ought not to ghettoize themselves, that we ought not to immediately enroll in homeschooling or private schooling, but that public education is a function of the government that is provided for everyone. And until the government decides to do away with the US Department of Education, it is something that many parents find themselves limited to doing. For example, if their children have particular special needs and need an individualized education program. What can we learn from parent pushback? Why has this issue itself really proven to be such a lightning rod in, for example, a way that perhaps <coughs> comprehensive sex education did not. Why are we seeing flooded school board meetings in this precise way? Because oh, it, go, ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, I think the reason why is because parents are understandably outraged when they see our cultural um, and nation, our most treasured values being placed under trial. Um, and they understand exactly what Rick said, that if we start promoting a sense of white identity, it's a truly horrible idea. Mm -hmm. And it's we're recoiling from the idea that anyone would want to do it. And I mean, we all see it. We all know that there's an alternative history being spun about America. I you know, live in a very conservative county in one of the best school districts in the state. And my daughter's in fifth grade at a World War II exam where she had to define militarism, um, Nazism, imperialism, colonialism, and nationalism all in the same category. And by the way, nationalism was defined as extreme pride in one's country. Um, she had to know the names, the proper names of Japanese internment camps. She did not have to know about Dachau or who liberated it, and not tested on the exam were any of the following subjects. Um, uh, Eisenhower, Patton, D-Day, MacArthur, none of those things were on the exam. It was just all you know, relentlessly focused. And so, I mean, I think parents are just like me. They're seeing what's coming home, and they're saying, my daughter doesn't know who George Washington is yet, but she's being taught the history of Japanese internment camps. Um, and so I think that a lot of parents are getting engaged. Um, and, you know, let's not make the mistake in thinking that states aren't in control of K through 12 curriculum. Um, rather than focusing on bans, I'd rather see us more focus on what it is we want. <coughs> That's going to be a, a big, a lot of spade work into developing, you know, a rigorous K through 12 curriculum and working out all of the troublesome areas. But from broad strokes, we shouldn't be hesitant in saying what we want. We think that K through 12 curriculum should be oriented around two things. Number one, teaching the value of individual liberty. And number two, teaching the price that Americans have paid throughout their history to secure individual liberty, period. Everything goes under those two umbrellas. I think as Rick said, uh, 
we actually have a winning hand, which is something as a conservative I'm not used <laughs> to having, um, in that, as Rick said, the, the ideal, the ideal, not just the idea of that all men are created equal, has a psychic hold on the American mind. Mm -hmm. If we're a nation of idea, a, a, a nation really of ideas, I actually, I, I think we can take that too far. I think we also are a, a, a nation with a culture, but that is the, the signal idea. And what happened was, as the critical race theory uh, uh, grabbed, uh, you know, grabbed the the, the the field of civil rights from the critical legal theorists, as as as, it, as, as Derek Bell defeated Duncan. Duncan Kennedy's allies and took this, uh, it, it became dominant. They, they, were, they became dominant inside the law school in the field of civil rights for about 20 or 30 years. But now that because of 2020, because of BLM, that CRT has jumped the lab the way it has and has entered every area of our life, they're meeting the American people. And the American people who have this, in, on whom the idea of all men are created equal has such a psychic hold, are saying, no, this makes no sense to me. They may not have read the Big Red Book. They may not have read uh, Richard Delgado. But they, they're saying, this makes no sense to me. And so I think this is why you're seeing this, this outbreak, this, this humongous backlash. I'm not used to getting 200 people in Mishawaka. Uh, I'm not, this is my first time in Mishawaka. But uh, you know, the, 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 the backlash is enormous because now it has it, it, it entered every area of our life, even the even the houses of worship, uh, the military, and 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 people say no, we we actually do believe in the individual. Our culture is based on individual merit, not collectivism, as we put it. Because what what this is is collectivism, and and we haven't always lived up to all men are created equal, and we have paid a price when we haven't, and when we have solved our problems, it's when we have aspired to live by those ideals. So I think that's why you have the backlash that you have. Mm. When, what's your thought? Sure, you know, uh, so we've done a lot of these cases in schools all across the country, and what we found is that parents are actually, they're very involved, some of them are very, very involved in the education of uh, not not just their kids, but also children in the area, if that's something that they're passionate about. So we've talked with Gwen Samuel, who's the head of the Connecticut Parents uh, Union, who advocates for school choice and against unconstitutional racial quotas in Connecticut. We've talked to Weiwa Chen and Kakagni advocating against racial balancing in New York specialized schools. And we also talked to Azra Nomani, who is against racial balancing and uh, against Asian American students in schools in at Thomas Jefferson in Virginia. And you'd be surprised, like all of them all share the same, they're all individuals and they, they might have uh, individual differences and in approaches, but they all share the same commitment to equality before the law and to furthering uh, education and, and the principles that we believe in. And that's why, I, that's why I said earlier, I think as soon as we peel back some of the layers behind uh, what I call racial essentialism, some people call critical race theory, I think we're on the high ground and we're going to be able to win a lot of these battles. Speaking rhetorically for a moment, how do we ensure that our students, and I'm at the most granular level here because we know that equity has permeated every aspect to a large extent of American life, whether it's medicine, whether it's loan programs, whether it's education, the corporate sphere, knowing that we have captive audiences in the American school child, how do we ensure that 
our children are not being subjected to discriminatory notions. And to a certain extent, this will parallel the earlier question that I asked, but understanding that our founding principles are those of equality, and we have the notion of all being equal and subject to the equal protection of the laws, what do we do for the American school child who, for example, there is no option to private or home school? How do we instill those particular values? Do we, as you've mentioned, push for restored civics education and strengthen what we are teaching in our history classes, in our government classes, in our political science classes? What is an aim that parents like me can pursue? So, I, I, so what we found so far, there are three things. Um, first of all, um, you, you have to find out what's going on, um, and you can, uh, um, to the extent that there's a network of parents who are willing to come forward, um, that, that helps. Um, one of the things that we found is that, uh, in, particularly in some parts of the country, it's there's a great deal of reluctance to come forward because people think that they're going to be shamed and ostracized. Um, you know, I, I joked about Madison, Wisconsin earlier. I, my, my standard line in, in, in talks is that when I go to court in Madison, Wisconsin, my objective is to sleep in my bed that night. Um, <laughs> the, um, um, but, but people are very, very afraid. Uh, and so if they can build up, they can build up uh, associations of like-minded people who go and listen to Mike in, 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 in Mishawaka and, 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 and form associations and, and, and have some strength in numbers that they can do that. Once you find these things out, we've also used open records requests. It's very, very hard, but we've done it. Try to find out what the curriculum is, what's going on. Um, then the first thing you can do is you can bat them around a bit. Uh, because you, one of the things that you have to do is there's no cost to being woke at this point. You have to impose a cost upon being woke, and the first cost is we're going to really embarrass you because we're going to we're going to expose what you did. Uh, the second cost is um, if you if you're bad enough. Um, we're going to sue you, and uh, our friends at the Southeastern Legal Foundation have given us uh, uh, an example of, uh, of, of how to best do that. Um, and then I think that there can be legislative solutions. They're difficult, as I indicated before. They have to be done in the right way. We've started in Wisconsin with nothing more than a curriculum transparency bill. All the bill says is you got to put the curriculum online. That's not perfect because there are a lot of things that won't get into that curriculum, um, but, but, but it's a start. And then um, the, the next level, because this is government speech, you know, people say that, well, you know, you guys fought for academic freedom in this case, that case, and the other case. So God, this isn't college, guys. This is high school. This is government speech. Somebody is going to be indoctrinated in something, and the political community gets to decide what that is, subject to, you know, a, a certain amount of safeguards. And so if we do it the right way, um, we can have legislation which, um, um, protects people against that indoctrination. The, the, the last thing, which I find intriguing, but, but probably um, um, futile and, and fantastical, is, is this argument that's being developed that wokeism is a religion and there's an establishment clause claim. Um, I don't believe it for a minute, but uh, that it would work. Um, I don't think I'd want it to work for a variety of reasons, but it really is kind of fascinating to think about.
And, and, and at a certain level, it's absolutely true. Mike, I saw you furiously writing over there. No, I, I just thought that uh, uh, somebody's going to be indoctrinated in something and the political community will decide what it, what it is. It's mm -hmm. a wonderful line. Uh, we'll pinch it. Sometimes I will give you credit for it. But. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, it's been brought up a couple of times um, that uh, the, 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 what we want to do with us to ban CRT, I, I'm actually, despite I think that was a good line, I, I, don't, I, don't, I argue all the time for not banning CRT. I write about CRT and I want my papers and books to be used and bought by universities and so forth. It's the implementation. When the implementation of CRT uh, violates existing law or the Constitution or Title VI, Title Seven, and I think that we're on safe ground there, very safe ground. And and if we, if the the other option, we will lose in the, in the Court of Justice opinion, the uh, Court of Public Opinion. We will uh, people will rightly say, well, we're not assigning uh, nine thousand word essays by Kimberly Crenshaw to fourth graders. We're not teaching CRT. Uh, so they could actually, and they would be saying the truth. It would be an untrue truth. Um, but it's the implementation uh, where, where I think we got them, and it's the implementation where we have the American people on our side uh, by, by a long shot. Yeah, again, speaking from a perspective of winning rhetoric on the issue, I loved what you said, Rick, about the cost to being woke. We know as far as private enterprise is concerned, we have an option not to buy, for example, Coca-Cola because of what its pursuit of diversity standards look like. Or, for example, Nike, assuming that we've identified that organization correctly and its own diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. For example, the NFL, for a very long time in organized sports, was taking a very woke pers perspective. And all of these, the term woke in and of itself really is, it's nothing but camouflage for these equity efforts. And it provides cover for an ideological attempt to gut what has been fundamental law in the United States for centuries. So let me ask the panel, how do we reward American opportunity? How do we promote American opportunity? And this is a very big question. Without making sure that populations who are coming from more disadvantaged backgrounds are not being diminished in their own capacity. How do we make sure we reward merit while at the same time providing a level basis for which all citizens can thrive? Well, I think one of the ways we can do that is to tear down barriers to entry. When you have uh, newer businesses, startup businesses, they often face a lot of different barriers. Any, anywhere from you know occupational licensing requirements to the time and cost it takes to get a permit uh, and multiple permits in, in many cases. So you know I, I do think it's true. I, I think what a lot of people on the woke side do not realize uh, or do not admit is that you know America has made tremendous pro uh, progress in actually living up to the ideals of equality before the law. But you know, in terms of economic opportunity, we want we want a society in which each individual is determined by that person's merits, that person's aspirations, that person's achievements, not who that person's grandfather was. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's the best way to promote uh, individual opportunity for all Americans. Yeah, the free market system works, and it's working right now. We have to recognize that it does work. Uh, in the Ozarks, about four days ago, 
I met an immigrant from Bulgaria who felt completely American, who was making, uh, who, who, who was making her life for herself. Uh, last night, I talked to a small businessman in Mishawaka who was from uh, Bolivia. He, 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 what he wants to do is grow his business. That's all he cares about. He's actually quite patriotic, loves being American. Uh, I think that we have to understand that this is the land of opportunity, continues to be the land of opportunity, despite what we're being told constantly. Yeah, you know, we, uh, 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 we're having our, our, our 10th annual dinner uh, uh, next month in Milwaukee, and the, the keynote speaker is Dr. Glenn Lowry, who talks about, you know, there's a narrative of victimization, and there's a narrative of development, and, and, and you need to choose. And I think you need to hold up um, um, places which are phenomenally successful. Um, one, of my, one of my colleagues, uh, uh, a fellow of ours, um, in his full-time gig, runs um, the Free Enterprise Academy at uh, Milwaukee uh, Lutheran High School. This is a school in the inner city. It's, uh, I don't know if it's 100% black. It's pretty close if it's not. And, um, and, and yet, by taking this different approach, um, they've chosen Dr. Lowry's narrative of development, and uh, uh, you know we've done a lot of work um, evaluating the outcome of uh, what is a very extensive school choice program in Milwaukee, which is usually focused entirely on the city of Milwaukee. And it, it it's not perfect, but it works. And uh, I think that um, we have to stop being. You're right, it works, and we have to stop being defensive about the fact that it works. We have to celebrate the fact that it works. Yeah. Braden, your thoughts? Well, I mean, Wen's right, removing barriers, and the two biggest areas are education and entrepreneurship, mm -hmm. and it seems to me that as conservatives, we have a great deal to say on both subjects. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think it's in, it, coincidental that, you know, we're talking about this kind of stuff going on through schools, and I mean, when you study these curriculums, I'm just struck by, among other things, what a colossal waste of time it is to invest all of this time and energy teaching kids identity politics when they need to learn how to read and write. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, these are going on in schools where, with horrendous uh, performance rates. I, and I don't think that that's an accident. I mean, I think that part of the reason why this has taken hold so quickly is because it's it holds out the specter of a panacea solution to a very deep and troublesome problem, and that is why in many places, particularly in minority communities, you have such a chronic record of underperformance in those schools. And I'd rather, you know, if you're, if you're in charge of those policies, it's a lot easier to, um, to attribute this as a cause than explain why for decades you've been producing 10 to 12% of kids who can perform at grade level. Mm. So, you know, we be engaged in educational policy and um, entrepreneurship. One last question, and then we're going to open it up for audience questions, both in person and online. What are some buzzwords that those who are in the audience today ought to listen to? Because there are not only equity efforts, but equity operates in partnership with other concepts. So what are those particular words for which the average American ought to be attuned to that are going to be affecting multiple aspects of everyday life? Oh, equity, anti-racism, um, privilege, um, uh, uh, some concept that um, there is such a thing as a black or a white truth, 
um, that cannot be challenged by somebody who is not um, um, a member of that group. Um, white fragility, which basically means that you know if you find any of this objectionable, there's something wrong with you. Um, I don't know. I'm sure there are lots of others you guys. Know. I'll just give one more. Uh, systemic. Systemic is the the the, the, the foundational. Everything they they. I think conservatives believe that, that racism is a is an individual sin. We're ignoring Christ's command to love thy neighbor when we decide not to love him because of his, his or her skin color. They see it as systemic. It's, it, it doesn't matter what happens individually. We live in a systemic and oppressive system. I don't think these people have traveled anywhere else outside the country if they think we, we live in an oppressive uh, superstructure, under an oppressive superstructure. So I think that they, they, I would just leave that. That word is the one that I think it's foundational to them is systemic. Because they want to change the system. And if you say this, we are systemically rotten, then we need to change the system. And that's what they seek. Well, systemic or institutional, I've both structurally, yeah. structural, absolutely. Those are all indicia of the fact that this is an unsolvable problem. If the institution itself is broken, there is no way to actually repair it. And an unidentifiable one. Yes. It's, it's systemic, which means it comes from nowhere. Uh, and so it's just there. And uh, don't, don't question it, but we don't have to show you how it got there or how it works or uh, anything else about it. And I'll point out, by the way, you're dealing with three lawyers that have actually gone to court against the government when it has been put to have to prove systemic racism exists. And I think I speak for all three of us when I say when you actually force the government to turn their cards over, the evidence of overwhelming racism in America is very underwhelming. Mm -hmm. When? So one word that I will add that sounds kind of well-meaning, but I think it is, is very ugly when you look at it, is the word ally because the, the way that I've seen used, it's like you can't, you can't believe a certain thing, you can't hold certain views because you are not of a certain race. I think when you actually think about that term for what it is, it's very ugly. I think it undermines the notion, the universal notion that as human beings, we have a human capacity to reason, to think for ourselves, and to hold knowledge regardless of race. So that, that's an extra word I would point out. So now we're going to open it up to questions. Two of our colleagues from the Legal Center, Alex Phipps and Katie Smallis, are going to be taking the microphone around to those of you who have questions. We're also fielding questions online, so we'll be asking those as well to our panelists. Um, you mentioned th these ideas and the, the, the kind of opposing ideas like opportunity or result. You mentioned disparate impact. The, these debates and so on have been around for quite a while. Uh, why is it that this is getting traction now? Uh, Sarah, you mentioned in the very beginning, like the last decade or so, it just seems to be this, this uh, you know, uh, avalanche of what's going on. Um, you mentioned Ferguson being like a, maybe a date, but why is it, what are the conditions or what what's different about the, today that makes all of this get so much traction? I'll just briefly answer that. First, I, I, I just wrote a book on BLM, so obviously to a hammer, everything's a nail. I think it's BLM. <laughs> uh, it, it, it really is 2020. It was a shock to the system. It was the costliest, uh, you know, disturbance, the civic disturbance in, the, in, in U.S. history. Uh, I think that everything changed. It jumped the lab. Into, yes, CRT had, has started to enter. All these concepts have started to enter K through 12. In, in the years previously, but but it then in, in 2020 just became overwhelming. 
Ferguson is the beginning of that. And I think that's what the tablet uh, did in, in, in tracking these terms. That's, that's, that's how I will answer it. Other questions? So a smart woman said to me um, in defense of the word equity that she'd had an experience where she was tutoring a young girl whose mother had died and whose father had been deported. And so she realized, the woman, that this girl needed basic help just to even get to the point where she could get into her classroom and, and keep up with the other kids. And part of my concern is that I think for a lot of people, equity gets at that. It's the famous cartoon that we've all seen of the three kids of different heights standing on the three different size boxes. How can we better use the concept of equality to get at that sense of you know helping people at least get to some sort of level ground? Well, I mean, I, I think that's a great illustration of the term equity and how vague its parameters are. It's also illustrative of something of the verbal shell game I mentioned earlier. No one would be against that person getting extra help. I mean, I don't think that's even equity or equality. That's just compassion. Um, and, you know, being in favor of equality doesn't mean you're against compassion. Now, I, I, I don't doubt that there are people who are going to def defend equity by using that as an example of that's what they mean. But, of course, that may be part of what they mean, but that's not the part that anybody has a problem with. The part that would make that problematic is if somebody said the solution to helping that little girl is to go next door and find somebody else of a different race and start doing something to disadvantage him so as to privilege this one little girl. Or, or to use her disadvantaged situation to justify providing the help that she needs to catch up to somebody else who just happens to have the same skin color or a demographic characteristic mm, right, as her. Point. You know, one of the things that happened to us during, um, <laughs> during pandemic days is uh, this was back when there was uh, there was a panic about testing, and uh, uh, there were there was in in the city of Milwaukee, um, uh, you know, uh, black folks were getting tested less than white folks, and arguably it was because there weren't uh, the same testing resources deployed in neighborhoods like um, five three two zero six is a is a uh, is a zip code on the north side of Milwaukee. It's really really poor, and uh, and so what the um, what the uh, what the governor announced is that uh, uh, there would be state uh, testing centers, and the state testing centers would be available for people who are uh, who are black. And uh, uh, if you were if you were white, you could te get tested if you had symptoms. If you're black, you should get tested. So. This was reported as a matter of fact in the local <clears throat> newspaper. I read this. I said, this cannot be true. Uh, we then inquired it to the governor's council. He says, oh, yeah, that's what we're doing. So uh, we sent uh, the governor a letter saying, you know, you can't do this. And, you know, geez, we've sued you 33 times. 34 wouldn't be much of a stretch. And uh, we didn't say that. Um, but, but, you know, we basically said, look, you can't do this. Now, it would be perfectly okay. If you wanted to make these testing resources available based upon poverty or some um, some non-racial um, indicia, which 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 would suggest that somebody needed a little bit of help, because that line that I said that we should never cross, that line wouldn't be crossed under those circumstances. And so we can argue about what kind of help works and uh, what kind of help is counterproductive. 
But as long as we're doing it based upon the individual circumstances of this child and not based upon assumptions, based upon you know, her race or um, other demographic characteristics, I think we're okay. Other questions? I've seen a few hands. Katie wore sensible heels today. That was a wise choice. <laughs> Uh, it seems to me that the left is very good at word salad. It also seems to me that they get ahead of the right on playing with words and creating words, Antifa, BLM, woke, wherever the heck that came from. And it seems to me also that, and I could be wrong about this, that when we talk about the origin of equity, it seems that there might have been some sinister not a plot, but just some sinister backstory to how to use that particular word, since it's in our dictionary, to counter a fundamental truth that we have, equality under the law. I don't know if you agree with that, but that's what it seems to me, and from the panel discussion I'm hearing right now, it seems that you might. And if you do, what other sinister machinations might be happening right now for further play on words to attack our founding principles and promote bringing down the country that the left is clearly trying to do from all fronts, it seems like. That's a great question. I don't think anyone owns language as well as the left owns language. And they are very adept, very adroit at taking something that has existed for centuries. In fact, equity itself is taken from equity courts that are centuries old, for which the law was inadequate to satisfy an appropriate outcome. We have an adequate law. We have multiple adequate laws to address the notion of equality. But that's a great question for our panel. Where else are we seeing these types of manipulation of long-standing terms. Where do you start? Diversity, <laughs> uh, inclusion. I mean, Peter Bogosian, who just left uh, Portland uh, State, uh, has a glossary. You should, I, I encourage you to look at it online. Uh, diversity is not what it pretends to be. It, it's, a, it's a political diversity. It's a political a quota system is what they want. I mean, to not to talk too much about Derek Bell. Derek Bell was very well known for insisting that uh, Harvard Law hire more African-American professors and give them tenure. But it's not, it, it was not really the color that it mattered when George H.W. Bush appointed Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court. He wrote incredibly caustic things about Clarence Thomas. Uh, I've met Clarence Thomas. He's black. Uh, it didn't matter to Derrick Bell. You know, Derrick Bell wanted to have people who agreed with him. Maybe you want to jump in here. You actually met him. I didn't meet him. But I mean, I read what he wrote about Clarence Thomas, and it, it was very clear that it's not really diversity what he wanted, nor, nor is it to any of them. I, I used to be a law professor, and uh, one of my colleagues uh, got up at a faculty meeting once, and he, he said, well, he said two things. First of all, he said, law school is the only professional school in existence that is run by people who actively hate the profession and run away from it <laughs> as quickly as they possibly can. Uh, the second thing was that um, my colleague's idea of diversity is this. They want somebody that went to the same schools, had the same job, think the same way, but just look a little bit different. And um, so it's not diversity at all. We, when we started our, our, our project in this area, we 
intentionally, we call it the Equality Under the Law Project. And that's what we, we got a fancy brochure, Equality Under the Law Project, because we're not going to, we, we will not, uh, we will not cede that term to the other side. And we're just going to stick to it adamantly. So, so let me add a small but maybe somewhat unpopular point, because I, I, I do want to be careful that we're not really um, falling into the trap of using overgeneralization and sort of crude stereotypes. I think a lot of what we're seeing today are uh, is very, very new. And, you know, there, there, I think there's an opportunity for us to build um, alliances and, and to persuade people. And I think a lot of people are already persuaded who we might not agree with on everything else. You know, I have friends who are, are liberal in the sense of they're, they're Democrats, uh, and they are outraged by this constant shifting. Like, it seems like every new month you have to learn 10 new words and, and think about what those mean, what those words mean um, if you're, you're woke. So, you know, I don't want to assume that everybody on, le on the left is on board with these, this new uh, interest in equity because they're not. I also don't think you can take more direct aim at America or its founding than what we saw over the last couple of years where we tried to recast America's founding as being one to protect white supremacy. Um, I don't think you can get any more bold or audacious than that, given the fact that we were founded on the self-evident truth that all men are created equal. So if you're willing to try and retcon that lie, um, I don't know that you can get any worse than that. I mean, you don't have to know much about American history to know about the Declaration of Independence or know that we fought our most violent war um, specifically to beat back the idea that the Declaration of Independence was subject to some kind of racial subclause or something. And, you know, I think it's fitting that on April 9th, 1865, when Lee surrendered to Grant in Appomattox, one of the first people he met was Lieutenant Colonel Eli Parker. Uh, he actually wrote the terms of surrender to the Army of Nor for the Army of Northern Virginia. He was a Seneca Indian man. He'd been with Grant for a long period of time. And when Lee walked in and saw him, he was surprised. And he said, well, it's good to see at least one real American here today. And Colonel Parker's response to that was, we're all Americans here, General. And it would be a wonderful world if that had been the epitaph of that idea. And, you know, we've talked about Plessy versus Ferguson. Plessy versus Ferguson was decades after the Civil War. And many decades hence was Dr. King standing not far from where we are now talking about redeeming a promissory note. So this is an idea that we've always had to beat back. And we'll beat it back again. And, you know, I hope that we one day stand and can say we're all Americans here. Wow, that was a tremendous conclusion <laughs> to this panel. I, I was going to take time for another question, but we have one minute left. And Braden, I think you have perfectly summarized our intent in today's panel, making sure that we understand the principles of our founding that do promote and protect the notion of the equality of all human beings in this country. Thank you so much for joining us today for future events in the Preserve the Constitution series. Go to heritage.org org slash PTC 2021 and thanks to those watching online as well. Great. That was awesome.